0: Welcome to Tim Bray's Ongoing Podcast, which is an audio version of a selection of the articles on my blog, also called Ongoing. I'm Tim Bray. You can find the blog at tbray.org. This is pretty well the same story you'd experience by reading it, but some people would rather listen. Here we go. This article was published on the 16th of January, 2023, and is entitled Class Reductionist. Like many geeks, I hoard a few dozen domain names, and currently they include the triple for class reductionist. Class reductionist is considered an insult by many progressives, and as far as I know, there's no organized faction claiming the label. And while I wouldn't either, I'm pretty sure I'd support the key policy goals that a hypothetical class reductionist would. Definitions and argumentation. Let's start with the urban dictionaries. The idea in some leftist circles that all oppression based on gender, race, sex, etc. is just a byproduct of class struggle, and that once class disparity is solved, all those issues will vanish. Salon goes deeper, in Assad Hyders, here's a link, house, how calling someone a class reductionist became a lefty insult. Specifically, it calls out the DSA Philadelphia chapter statement on the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. The DSA presented a very class-centric position, that the murder was a consequence of class oppression, and that socialists such as the DSA were thus uniquely qualified to address the problem. You don't have to be a political science PhD to notice that Floyd's murder was a racist act that can only be understood in a racism-aware framework, and that omitting that dimension is clueless. On the other hand, ignoring the class dimension of oppression in general, racism in particular, and George Floyd's murder in particular particular, would also be clueless. Mr. Floyd was a man with a bunch of problems, but one of the biggest was that he was broke. Dive deeper. Anyhow, I'm not going to get too far into theory arguments because, as I argue below, I don't think they make much difference in which political policies we ought to adopt. But it's an interesting conversation, so here's a short reading list that I think is both educational and fascinating. And Here we have a picture of prof- Professor Adolf L. Reed Jr., whom we'll meet in the text in just a minute, and, well, he just looks like what he is, which is, you know, a middle-aged, black, university professor, kind of balding, big smile. Item. The the myth of class reductionism is by Adolf Reed. Professor Reed seems to be upstream from a lot of this debate and goes so far as to question the value of much anti-racism in practice. I'm not always 100% convinced, but the man is eloquent and erudite. Item. The Marxist who antagonizes liberals on the left in The New Yorker covers Professor Reed and his ideas and history and writings pretty thoroughly. Once again, I'm not a disciple, but his line of argument is never not stimulating. Item. In The New York Times, check out Link, a black Marxist scholar wanted to talk about race. It ignited a fury. It's about what the title says, how Professor Reed's ideas led to a hideous meltdown when the New York City DSA branch invited him to give a speech. Opponents accused him of being, quotes, reactionary class reductionist reductionist," and, at best, tone-deaf, end quotes. The event was cancelled. Both sides of the debate are interesting. And finally, that Salon piece that I linked above by Asad Haider, Once it it gets past the Floyd episode, it digs pretty deep into all the stuff in this list. I found it nuanced and eye-opening. Intersectionality What schools of thought are in opposition to class reductionism? The three I hear mentioned are identity politics, postmodernism, and intersectionality. I never understood what the first meant, and anyhow, it's just a right-wing culture warrior battle cry now. As for the second, postmodernism? I mean, 2023 now, who cares? Intersectionality, though, is one of the more interesting newish things in progressive thought. It's simple enough and seems self-evidently true. Oppression isn't one-dimensional, but operates along axes including race and gender and age and disability, and not always in simple ways. Let me put it another way. Traditional patriarchal thinking is built around the notion of the default standard person, who is a straight, white, heterosexual, neurotypical, fully-abled cis male. To the extent that any person varies from standard, they are disadvantaged and likely oppressed. Add another way. A black trans woman with a disability is likely to have an extremely difficult life, at no fault of her own. Intersectionality issues a challenge. It's neither ethical nor effective to try to solve just one of these problems, because they combine in complicated ways. It's a school of thought that causes eye-rolling on the right, and is held at a distance by some old-school leftists, which puzzles me because it seems so self-evidently empirically true. And yet, in the first paragraph above, I said friendly things about the policies a class reductionist might advance. How so? It's about the money. Let's return to that black trans woman with a disability that I mentioned above. The forces which affect her are complex, but one of the results is highly predictable. She's probably broke, possibly to the point of food or shelter insecurity. Life and intersectionality are complex, but money is, relatively speaking, simple. As a society, there's plenty of it to go around, but it's distributed stupidly, unjustly, and inefficiently, and it's getting worse. In Vancouver, the insanely rich city where I live, Teslas and Lamborghinis are as common as dirt, but our food banks are facing skyrocketing demand. That's a link. And there's a constant struggle to feed the kids who, another link, come to school hungry. Let me hand the mic to, link, Sarah Smarsh, a writer with an unusually deep understanding of the American poverty she grew up in. Link. And here is a uh, screenshot of a tweet by Sarah Smarsh. And it reads, I'm no economist, but when I give lectures about our class structure and growing up in rural poverty, someone always asks these two questions, and I always give these three-word answers. Question, what causes poverty? Answer, being born poor. Question, how do we solve poverty? Answer, give people money. And this is actually a quote tweet uh, of Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, who, who tweeted, after you think about it for a little while, you wind up at universal basic income. Back to my text. And then, here's the paper that led me to writing this long, gestating piece. It's called The Effects of the 2021 Expanded Child Tax Credit on Adults' Mental Health, a Quasi-Experimental Study, and it's in Health—that was a link, by the way—and it's in a a publication called Health Affairs, and it's by Batra Jackson and Harnad, all from UCSF's Social Policies for Health Equity Research Program. That's a, a link, and it's from that research team. So here's most of the abstract. The U.S. Congress temporarily expanded the Child Tax Credit, CTC, during the COVID-19 pandemic to provide economic assistance for families with children. Although formerly the CTC provided $2,000 per child for mostly middle-income parents, during July to December 2021 it provided up to $3,600 per child. Eligibility criteria were also expanded to reach more economically disadvantaged families. We examined the effects of the expanded CTC on mental health and related outcomes among low-income adults with children and by racial and ethnic subgroup. We found fewer depressive and anxiety symptoms among low-income adults. Adults of black, Hispanic, and other racial and ethnic backgrounds demonstrated greater reductions in anxiety symptoms compared to non-Hispanic white adults with children. Here's the end of the excerpt from the abstract. So, we mustn't stop working hard to disentangle and remediate the messy intersectional vectors of oppression. But while we do that, something along the lines of a universal basic income routes around that mess and, well yes, granted, focuses on treating oppression symptoms, but why not? I'd go further. I'd put the goal of getting money flowing to the oppressed at the front of the queue. It's a policy that has the virtue of being simple and easy to understand and easy to explain and, based on the evidence from a variety of universal basic income studies, has results that are beneficial and not very hard to measure. It will, of course, require a ferocious political struggle against the moneyed patriarchal interests for whom the current society is ticking along just fine, ignoring, of course, the hungry kids coming to school and people being killed by police over crimes which range from petty to non-existent. Time to get on board with that struggle. But but racism! Anyone who makes these kinds of arguments is at risk of being accused of looking away from the glaringly obvious racism which seems to inhabit the white-hot center of the intersectional tangle of oppression. Especially when that anyone is someone like me, a standard human per the criteria listed above, possibly blinded by my own whiteness. I don't have anything cheerful to say. I try to be anti-racist, a good ally, but I don't think I'm good at it. And I don't think we're going to break racism's back in this generation or the next. I've come to believe that humanity as a species has a hardwired predisposition for tribal behavior, for hating and giving the chan- given the chance casually killing the people who live over there and speak with that accent and eat that meat and worship that god. My prediction is that if our civilization survives another couple of centuries, we'll do better. But we'll still need a strong early education focus to bend young minds away from tribalism and towards intercultural harmony. Anti-racism will never end. And apologizing in advance for negativity, I think it's not just me who's bad at anti-racism. We as a society generally suck at it. I speak as a veteran of years of involvement in corporate DEI programs, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, and donations to worthy charitable causes and signing the right petitions. We have in my lifetime developed an increasingly accurate perception of the pervasiveness of bigotry, but done a miserable job of alleviating it. I'm optimistic that we'll get better at it. One lifespan is a pretty short time to develop approaches and tools, but I am in no way inclined to put other urgent measures on hold while we work it out. Given the above, it seems both ethical and urgent to focus right now on doing our best to make sure that everyone can count on being fed, clothed, and sheltered. Among other things, the oppressed people should have a leadership role in fighting oppression, and that's not just going to ha- that's just not going to happen if they're putting all their effort into making the rent and feeding their kids. And here we have a picture of a pillow. <laughs> with a cartoon of Karl Marx on it, with a hammer and sickle flashing into existence over his head. And this is obviously quoting to uh, video game uh, visuals, and a little quote balloon below saying, You've got the hammer and sickle! It gives you class consciousness to make revolution and seize the means of production. And the caption notes that a wide selection of Karl Marx cartoons' cushions are available at Public. that's a link, and this one's by somebody called Gaby Shiny, and that's a link. Marxism? You can't really take this kind of angle without acknowledging that you're talking about class, which means you're a Marxist, right? And indeed, Marxists from pedantic academics to hard-ass tankies are at one in explaining how class transcends issues of race and gender, and that fighting for the working class implies attacking multiple other vectors of oppression. And they have a point. So I can get along with the Marxist take as long as prioritizing anti-poverty doesn't mean you think you're automatically anti-racist or can postpone addressing the other flavors of oppression. And thinking about social problems through the lens of class seems like a powerfully useful tool for understanding the social problems we're trying to fix. Well, what am I then? I wish there were a convenient label to describe the perceptions that I've described here. Which is to say, I'm unlikely to deploy a classreductionist.org website anytime soon. I think of slogans like prioritize poverty and send money now. But for the moment, I don't know what domain name I should buy. Maybe I'm a Smartian? A Reedite? What I really believe is, send money. Start now. But that is a lousy label. And that's all, folks.